35,000. That is the number to remember. 35,000 is the best scientific estimate that we have for the number of decisions that you make every day. 35,000. Think about that. See what I did there? Gave you a choice to make. You don't have to think about it. Uh, If you're awake 16 hours a day, that means you make a decision 1.6 times every second. Researchers at Cornell University estimate that you make 226.7 decisions each day on food alone. Now let that sink in. We are so rich as a culture that we have literally hundreds of decisions to make every day on what we're going to eat. Taco Bell or Goyos, McDonald's or Spangles, cereal or oatmeal, scrambled eggs or poached eggs, pancakes or waffles, sausage or bacon, which that's not even really a choice, right? The only way to eat sausage is throw it away and get some bacon. You know what I'm saying? Like that's only... But that, that's just breakfast. You know, we haven't even talked about second breakfast or snack or lunch or any other decisions of food that you're going to have to eat. You add all that up, 226.7 times you're going to think about food. I've been places in the world where they have one choice all day. It's rice or nothing. I'm not saying that to be critical of you. I'm just pointing out that as your level of income increases, so does the number of decisions that you have to make. Think about how many choices you have when it comes to clothes, what you're going to wear this morning, how many shoes you have, how many watches you have, how many different headbands you have. Uh, There was an article recently written about how uh, super influential people, like the smartest people in the world, they don't want to stress themselves about what they're going to wear. So they wear the same thing every single day. They say they don't want to occupy their brain power. It consumes calories to make decisions, so they're just going to wear the same thing. So, for example, Mark Zuckerberg wears a gray T-shirt and blue jeans every day. Steve Jobs became famous for wearing a black turtleneck, blue jeans, and New Balance sneakers every single day. Uh, Simon Cowell, you've seen him. What's he wear? White T-shirt and jeans every single day. Not going to mix it up. It's also worth pointing out that every decision you make carries with it certain consequences. Consequences that can be good or bad. Like it's good to eat. Sometimes what you eat, though, is bad for you. It's good to wear the same thing every day, like a uniform, but it's bad if you don't wash that mug, you know, at least once, you know, you don't want to smell and whatnot. Uh, So here's why I bring all that up. Because what we're trying to do over these couple weeks together is learn how to keep the change. Don't know how many of you have ever started something and weren't able to complete it or set a goal and you never achieved it and uh, you, you wanted to do something and you just weren't able to do it. But the Bible has some helpful strategies in how you can complete those things, how you can see things through to the end, how you can complete the change. So for our conversation today, what I thought would be helpful for us to understand are the strategies that we employ to make one of those 35,000 decisions that you have to make every day. Subconsciously, science has shown that uh, you'll use one of six strategies in order to make a decision. Neuroscientists have pointed this out. You might want to write some of these down. The first strategy that you use to make a decision is impulsiveness. 
impulsiveness. Leveraging the first thing that comes to mind, the first option that you're given, you just take that one. That's called impulsiveness. It's what happens at the grocery store and the reason that there's candy at the checkout line. Because if you're impulsive, you're going to buy it. Ironically, impulsiveness is the same reason Laura doesn't send me to the grocery store alone. I tend to be a bit impetuous. Just a couple weeks ago, we went to Sam's Club to get our dog some bones to chew. She's a great Dane, so she either chews the bones or our entire house. That is the complex dog decisions that she has to make every day. Uh, But Laura and I were really trying to stick to a grocery budget this year. And so she says, when I go to get the bones, she says, get only dog bones. Remember the budget. I said, babe, I got this. I know. Dog bones only. I'm, I'm on it. I'm the one that came up with the budget. She said, I'm going to go over here and get gas. Sam's Club's got cheaper gas. You get dog bones, and that is it. So I said, check. 10-4. I'm on it. Go into Sam's Club. Little old lady has some, like, free samples. And she's like, you want some free samples, sir? I was like, don't talk to me. I got dog bones. And that is it. So I leave Sam's Club, rather proud, carrying the dog bones and a five-pound jar of peanut butter M&Ms. And she's like, what are you doing? I, was like, I don't know. I blacked out on the way to the register. It was like, right, I, don't, I can't help my, don't send me alone anymore. And that's impulsiveness. Uh, strategy number two to employ is compliance. Compliance. This is choosing the most pleasing, comfortable, popular option for everybody involved. Like peanut butter M&Ms. Those are pleasing and impactful to everybody involved. Uh, This is compliance. This is ironically the same thing that you do to your kids in the grocery store. When they're acting a fool and you want them to be compliant, what do you do? Take this snack, be compliant, just be quiet. Number three is delegating. We've all made decisions by delegating. This is not making the decision yourself, but putting it off to others. It's what you do when your boyfriend or girlfriend or your spouse, when you try and decide what to eat. What do you want to eat? I don't know. What do you want to eat? I don't know. I'll eat whatever you want to eat. No, you won't. Don't lie. You have something in mind, but you don't want to make the decision. I've decided that you should decide. That's delegation. Uh, It's also eerily similar to number four, which is avoidance or deflection. Avoidance or deflection. This is ignoring the decisions in an effort to avoid responsibility for their impact. Like, I don't want to decide what to eat and then have you not like it. So I I don't want to do that. I don't want to pick the movie and have it be dumb. You know, I don't want to wear this outfit and have it look wretched. So you tell me avoidance or deflection. We all make decisions in that way. Fifth is balancing. Balancing is an important one to know because this is how we think we make decisions, but we rarely do. It's weighing all the factors involved, studying them, and then using the information that we have to make the decision the best one in that moment. So we think we're making the best decision in the moment. That's why it tends to be a good option. Like who wouldn't want to make the best decision? But what I'm arguing this morning And the reason I titled my message this morning, Strategy 6, is because I think there's a better way. It's strategy number 6, which is if we're going to keep the the change, have fullness of life that can only be found in Jesus, you have to make your decisions in this way. It's called prioritizing and reflecting. 
Strategy six, prioritizing and reflecting. This strategy is all about putting the most energy, the most thought, the most effort into those decisions that will have the greatest impact. So it's not just about the moment. It's also about the future. What are the pros and cons to this? Where does this actually lead? Where does this extra drink take me? What will this do? Will this cost me my job? Will this cost me my family? Where does this sexual relationship go? To an unexpected pregnancy? To a health crisis? Where does this shady business deal go? Like, what are the employees going to think when they find out? Sure, you're going to make more money, but is everybody in the company going to start making decisions this way? Like, where do these decisions actually lead? And so here's what I want you to know. When it comes to decision-making and prioritizing and reflecting, there's a difference between a problem to be solved and a tension to be managed. When it comes to making decisions, prioritizing and reflecting, there's a difference between a problem to be solved and a tension to be managed. How do I know? Because when you solve a problem, it stays solved. But how many times have you thought you solved a problem only for it to come up again? And you're like, what in the world? I thought we were past this. Nope. That's because there's a difference between a problem to be solved and a tension to be managed. It's likely you tried to solve a problem when it was actually a tension that you were supposed to manage. I'll say it this way. Most of the conflict that you have in your life is because you're trying to solve a tension as if it's a problem with a solution. But don't take my word for it. Let me show you this in Scripture. If you brought a Bible, I hope you did. Go ahead and grab it. Meet me in Nehemiah chapter 4. If you don't own a Bible, uh, flat out just grab one on the way out there at Connection Corner. We got some for you. That's our gift. While you're getting there, let me quickly catch us all up. Last week, we talked about a universal scientific principle at work in your life called the law of diminishing returns. In short, what you put in does not match the uh, return that you get. Like you put in all of this effort and the return that you see does not match up to that. And we feel discouraged by that. And so we give up. But we're not looking at it the right way because you've got to see where you came from compared to where you are now. Look things at the totality in a whole. But we took Nehemiah as a case study on this point. We tried to learn how do we beat this law of diminishing returns. We found that if we'll seek God faithfully and we'll define our desired future clearly... And if we'll make a plan carefully and bring some people alongside us and inspire them passionately, then we can 100%, the place that that leads to is positive change. And you'll likely be able to keep the change. I told you how what's next, it's always going to look more interesting than what's now. And so you need to get focused about the now. Do your next right step. Stay focused. That's what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah was burdened by the fact that his ancestors' hometown the walls there is destroyed. People were being able to come in and steal things and do all kinds of wicked stuff. And so he set out a plan to do something about it. And he saw that plan all the way through to the end. In the same way, I would argue that most of you have something in your life that you're burdened by. And I challenge you last week to write that out in a sentence. Be very clear about what it is in your life that you're burdened by. And I challenge you, what's some proverbial life wall that you need to start rebuilding. You stressed? You addicted? 
You a workaholic? You want to be a better husband, better wife, better parent? You want to be a better employee, a better student? You want to help people? What people? How are you going to help them? You want to drill wells? You want to help feed hungry kids? You need to be clear, crystal clear, and you need to make a plan. Now I need to help you strategy six that plan. S, six it to completion. Brings us to Nehemiah 4. Let's go. When Samballot heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Uh, The word feeble there in the Hebrew, it, it literally means wilted flower. What are these wilted flowers, those feeble Jews? What are they doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it would break down the wall of stones. <laughs> burned. By the fox joke. <sighs> Anybody know what a fox says? A ding, 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 ding. Come on, somebody. You know that song. What does a fox say? Nobody got it. All right. So we've got a situation besides my singing. Nehemiah has a predicament. The walls are down. Opposition has shown up. Hope you realize that when you are living out your calling, you'll always face criticism who, from people who have given up on theirs. And so opposition comes when you start doing something. That's not coincidence. Your enemy does not want you thinking that this is going to be easy. So when work goes down, opposition comes up. It would be uh, something in your life. It could be as simple as you decided to come to church for the first time in a long time. And the whole way there, you got in a fight, you got in an argument, you started cussing on the way to the house of God, kids are yelling, you're yelling, and then when you get here and the greeter comes and smiles and says, hey, good morning, we're glad you're here, what do you do? You lie, oh, great morning, we're so happy to be here, things are great, we love each other, you know, blessed and highly favored, and we're just so happy, brother, we're so happy to be here, and you lied, because you just got done yelling and fighting and arguing, and it's opposition, it's what happens, and it could be you're trying to get out of debt, like this is a problem, I'm in debt, we need to pay off some bills, and the moment that you've decided that and set out a plan to make that happen, what happens? Your car breaks down, and now you've got a $700 expense that you weren't, and now you're in even more debt. Could be that you decided you're going to start serving. Maybe for the very first time, you're like, I'm going to honor God, finally going to take that step of faith, and what happens? You get sick. You're like, what in the world? I'm finally doing what you asked me to do? And then this opposition thing comes up. Could be where you want to do something. You got a dream in your heart. One of those things we talked about earlier. I want to go help people. I'm going to drill well. I'm going to go over here. We're going to do that. So you tell somebody about it. And you're like, that's a dumb idea. Like, that'll never work. And somebody that you care about and you love shoots down your idea. This is why getting your priorities in line on the front end is such a big deal. That's why you have to understand there's a difference between a problem to be solved and attention to be managed. Opposition is attention. How do I know? Because it ain't going nowhere. You know what I'm saying? Opposition is always going to be there. You shouldn't be surprised when you faced resistance. 
Don't ever be surprised when you take that step of faith and your enemy wants to push back because advancement invites opposition. You know what's true about your enemy? Our enemy? The devil? What's true is he doesn't bother with you if you're not a threat. If you're just living life, walking by his way, doing his will, of course he's going to leave you completely alone. The moment you try and step out of that, and you try and honor God, and you make life not about you, and you're not living for culture, he, he's going to, flag's going to go up, and alarm bells are going to start sounding all over hell, and sounding and saying everything that you possibly could imagine is going to start coming your way, trying to deter you off your route, and stop you from doing that thing that God has put in your heart. You should expect that. You should expect opposition. Most specifically, you should expect spiritual opposition. So if you don't want any opponents in life, if you want to have a really easy life, I'll tell you exactly how to do that. What I would recommend, if you want an easy life, is that you just coast along. Find the most comfortable thing that you can do. It might take you a few times in your job to figure out what that is. But find the most comfortable thing that you can do and just stay in that lane. Create the perfect little environment for your safe life where you can take the perfect selfies and show everybody on IG what your life, what pretends to look like. And uh, everybody can be happy for you and go to church if you want to, but, you know, only on nice days and don't actually engage. Whatever you do, do not start praying. Don't you dare serve. You 100% cannot start giving Please do not care about the things of God. Just do some spiritual things. Okay, love each other and some trees and whatever. Be spiritual. But uh, just do enough to make you feel good. Do not ever do anything that's going to make a real difference. Because the moment that you do, you start trying to make a difference. The moment you do any of those things, you get out of your comfort zone, start trying to serve the God of heaven and represent His love. The second you give your life over to self-sacrifice for the sake of others, opposition is going to come in like a tidal wave. So I would advise you, stay out of the game, live a self-centered life, make this about what you want, and do everything to make you happy, and you'll stay out of trouble. Okay? Because make no mistake, the Christian life, the life of the Bible, it's a life to come and die. It's a life of self-sacrifice. Make no mistake, God's not promising you health. God's not promising to make you rich. God's not even promising you happiness. If that's all you want in life, money and healthy and happy, you're dreaming way too small. The God of the Bible, what he promises you, Jesus, is a life of fulfillment. I've come so you might have life and have it to the full. You've got to dream bigger than some of that shallow stuff. You want to be a difference maker, a world changer? That's what Jesus has called you to do. He's called you to be significant. And the moment that fire starts to smolder in your heart, you will absolutely face opposition. And in case you're one of the dangerous few who's not afraid of opposition, let me give you a little piece of advice that I got a long time ago when it comes to opposition. I would encourage you to employ it. Don't ever take criticism from somebody who you would never go to for advice. You know, a lot of people will hand out criticism like it's candy, but don't take criticism from somebody if you would never go to them for advice. But again, there's a difference 
between a problem to be solved and attention to be managed. Opposition, it's attention. It's not going anywhere. You need to know that. You need to embrace that. And you need to keep moving forward. Verse 7. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod all heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and we prayed and posted a guard day and night to meet his threat. See what they didn't do? They didn't just pray. Say, God, keep this threat away from us. They prayed and posted a guard. Now, don't get me wrong. I absolutely, 100% believe in the power of prayer. Just had a guy call me this week from this church who I've been praying for 10 years that God would cure him of an incurable cancer. No treatment. They gave him 5 to 10 years to live. I've been praying for 10 years that God would show up and do something amazing that his name would be praised. And he called me this week and said, I just got back from my doctor's office. And they said, I'm in complete remission. No detectable cancer. You know what he did? He didn't just pray. He went to Omaha for an experimental treatment. A treatment two years ago wasn't even available And he became a candidate and said, I'm going to try this thing out in addition to my prayers. And you know what God did? God made it work. God gave the doctors the wisdom to say, hey, we're going to try this thing where we genetically modify a cell. And in turn, that's going to attack the bad cells. And let's see if this works. And it worked. And to God be the glory. Come on, somebody. You want to praise God for something? How about that? Because for 10 years, he exceeded all odds. Tried different things. Prayer's never passive. Prayer's a verb. You got to do your part. Let God take care of his part. He ain't going to steer a parked car. So you better step out in faith. Meanwhile, people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them. We can kill them and put an end to the work. Uh Uh-oh. Laborers are losing heart. Enemies are feeling encouraged. That's a problem, right? Low morale, excited enemies. Yeah, but hold on, because there's a difference between a problem to be solved and attention to be managed. And if you'll strategy six this mug and reflect and prioritize, you'll remember what's the real problem. Real problem's the wall. Needs rebuilt. How do we know that's the problem? Because it is. There's a solution to that. We rebuild the wall, it stays rebuilt. So that's a problem. Which means, what's our tension? We already talked about it. Tension is the opposition. Enemies surrounding us. This is a problem. This is a tension. Problem is the wall. Tension is the enemies. Now, you heathens in the room are going to say, whoa, 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 pastor. I could solve this problem of the enemies right away. Quick shiv to the liver of Samballot and Tobiah. Like, I solved that problem. No. What? Like, why are you so violent, first of all? Second of all, that doesn't solve anything because some other enemy is just going to rise up right away. You know that from your own life. There's always something. This is why strategy six is such a big deal because when you prioritize and reflect, you'll know exactly what to attack. Write that down. Choose what to attack. Not everything needs your attention right away. 
You got to choose what to attack. How do we know? Because this is what Nehemiah did in chapter 6. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? What's your great project? You need to know what it is. You're doing something great. God has put it in your heart. He's a plan and a purpose for your life. You've got a great project. Don't leave it for the sake of anybody. Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. So did you see it? Nehemiah chose what to attack. It wasn't his enemies. It was the completion of the wall. In your life, stop attacking the tensions. Start attacking the problems. See, if you can be honest with yourself, and I'm not pretending with you, that you can, but if you could be honest with yourself, then you'd understand that if I don't start attacking problems, then I'm never going to be able to keep the change. Let me say it this way. Hopefully this will help some of you. Any process that doesn't start with God ends with disappointment. Okay? I'll say that again because that was really good. You just did that thing again where you stare at me. It's like, what? Uh, Any process that doesn't start with God ends with disappointment. So before we can do anything of any real significance, we have to make sure God is after the same thing that we are which I would argue in almost all of your situations and the problems that you have, God wants you to solve those problems. I don't think that's really your issue. I think your issue is you're attacking the wrong thing. It would be like Nehemiah attacking his enemies instead of attacking the wall. So I'll be super practical, give you some examples. It's around this time of year that people say, my weight is a problem. My number one goal, far and away in America, the number one resolution that people set in the new year is to lose weight. And so people say, I'm going to go to the gym, so the gyms are just slammed. The problem is I need to lose weight. People say, I'm overweight, it's a problem. Wrong. That's not the problem. Sure, it might be a problem, but it's not the problem. The problem is that you work all day. And you just sit around at your desk and then you choose to snack and you eat junk processed food and you drink terrible soda and you never exercise. And so if you try and attack the weight, you won't ever keep it off and you won't ever lose it. That's because it's not the actual problem. Problem is your choices. Other people will say uh, the problem is debt. I'm in debt. It's a problem. True. But that's not the actual problem. The problem is you're not content with what you have. The problem, again, is your choices. You're not trusting God to meet your needs. Now, please don't be complacent. Work hard. Get those things that you desire. Uh, God's never called you to a life of complacency. He's called you to be content. Attack the real problem. Why can't you be happy with what you have? Others will say, the problem's my marriage. The problem's my spouse. The problem's my job. The problem's my boss. You so sure? What happens when you prioritize and reflect? Strategy six. Nehemiah, what's he teaching us? He's teaching us here, not everything and not everybody needs your attention. Unfortunately for most of us, the squeaky wheel is what gets the grease. Not for Nehemiah. Four times, he says. 
Four times they sent me a message. I gave them the same answer. And four times I've gone to rehab. And four times I've been married. And four times I interviewed for the job. And four times I had to retake that class. And four times should tell you your priorities are off. You're doing the same thing. You're expecting different results. You're not attacking the real problem. You're attacking attention. It needs to be managed. Hope you know Jesus had to go through the same conundrum. The difference between a problem to be solved and tension to be managed, Jesus had to do that. What was Jesus' problem? Sin. Sin was disrupting his creation. It says that all things are held together through the power of Jesus. He was involved in creation. Sin starts disrupting that. If you don't know the word sin, the original word, it means to fall short. It means it's an archery term. It's like shooting at a target, but you miss the target. And that's how God's holy, righteous, perfect law works. When we don't hit that holy, righteous, and pure law, it means we're falling short. It means we sin. Unfortunately, all of us have sinned. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And uh, so what's God do? He gives people the Ten Commandments. That was actually to prove to you that you can't actually keep God's righteous, pure, and perfect law. He, he really only needed one commandment. Uh, you should have no other gods before me because all of us fail in that one. And that was the only one he needed. But he gave us ten to show you that you can't solve it. So what's God's solution to the law problem, to the sin problem? Well, God decides that he's going to become a man himself. And he's going to live that perfect, righteous, and holy life so you don't have to. And he's going to die on a cross because death is the result of sin. The wages of sin is death. You earn death by sinning. So God says, I'm going to become a man. I'm going to live a perfect life so my creation doesn't have to. I'm going to die a death that's meant to them, for them. And in return, I'm going to raise from the dead after three days and defeat sin and death once and for all. Nobody's excited about that. Uh, like amen would be a good time for that right there. When I say God's going to defeat sin and death once and for all, amen. amen. Okay, good. Now that we're on the same page. Uh, so he uh, it solves the problem of sin and creates a solution for us to grab a hold of. The only thing that we have to do is, by faith, say, yes, I believe in your solution to this problem. Now, sin is certainly still a tension for us, something that we have to manage every single day. The problem of the punishment of sin, we get to beat that. That's taken away by Jesus. We don't have to worry about that. There is no that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So God's not punishing you for anything when you trust in Jesus. But in Jesus's defeat of sin, he still had tensions to manage, didn't he? Pharisees, there was a tension to manage. He didn't just wipe them off the face of the earth. Uh, Peter's walking around chopping dudes' ears off, using profanity about the time that Jesus is about to be crucified. Tension to be managed. Judas stealing money out of the treasury. Uh, Tension to be managed. Jesus didn't solve that problem. So Jesus had to manage tensions as much as he had to solve a problem. Same thing is true for you. There's a difference between a problem to be solved and tension to be managed. So let me ask you two questions as we wrap up everything this morning. Question one, is this a problem to be solved or a tension to be managed? Ask yourself that. Am I trying to solve tensions when I need to be solving problems? Is this a problem to be solved or a tension to be managed? Because if you try and solve a tension, you're going to create more problems for yourself. And many of us are doing that. Again, what's the difference? A problem has a solution. Attention you have to manage over and over and over and over. Secondly, when it comes to priorities, when it comes to prioritizing and reflecting, strategy six, what's the most important thing right now? 
like today because you have to choose what to attack. And right now, as a father of three, what I can tell you is my golf game is horrible. 15 years from now, maybe it'll be better. But I can't attack that right now. And as a father of three, I can't buy as many shoes as I want. And I, I can't, you know, I got to choose maybe not at my age to not drink that whole 44-ounce Pepsi and vanilla Coke because that stays right in this region for whatever reason. It, like, never goes away. And I can't buy that new truck, and I can't get, you know what I'm saying? Like, so some of the decisions that you have to make, you got to choose what to attack. And if you make every decision based on the lie of balance, then you're just surviving. You are not thriving. So hear me when I say this. If you'll make every decision based on prioritizing, then you will start prospering. Come on, somebody. You still with me? I know it's cloudy and we're like rain, like it's going to rain and stuff, but this is really good what I'm giving you. Prioritize, you will prosper. How do I know? Because that's what Jesus did. He set some priorities. He didn't cure every single person that he came across, right? He didn't overthrow a corrupt Roman government when he had the opportunity. Jesus didn't make himself rich. Matter of fact, he died homeless. So what does he do? He set some priorities. And with laser-like focus and intensity, he fulfilled his purpose. He defeated sin for your benefit. And he made a way for you to live forever. He knew what was most important right now. What's most important for you right now? took Jesus three years to accomplish it, by the way. took Nehemiah 52 days to build a wall. Doesn't mean it's going to come quick for you. That's why day in, day out, strategy six, prioritize and reflect. Is this a problem to be solved or attention to be managed? What's my next right step? And on this journey we go. Every head bowed, every eye closed. God, help us this morning. You've put these plans and purposes in our life. Help us understand what those are. God, you've asked us perhaps to change some areas in our lives. We want to surrender those things to you. We want to start living for you. We want to make the best right decision right now and in the future. And God, you're the only one that can help us do that. And any process that doesn't start with God ends with disappointment. So God, let us humble our hearts right now to hear from you. Do what only you can do and speak. Help us understand where we're attacking tensions when we need to be attacking problems. Help us figure out how to manage those tensions in a healthy, wise way while solving the problems that you've allowed to be in front of us, but with your power and your grace and your strength, we can get through them. We know the opposition is going to come up. God, help us, encourage us. This morning, we've seen you move. You've moved mountains. God, we're praying, do it again. And as you pray over that, I also just want to challenge you and encourage you. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, that's where this whole thing has to start. He defeated the problem of sin. But you have to choose to accept that. And I just want to give you the opportunity right now just to do that. 
surrender your life. Because God, we know that you sent your son Jesus here to this earth and that he died for our sin, all of it, past, present, and future sin. So God, we confess our sin to you now. Help us, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Let us walk in your ways. Help us leave one step closer to you. We love you and praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.